Welcome to this week's episode of the Manager Track Podcast. I'm bringing on a guest today. His name is Doug Thorpe, and we're going to talk about how to build trust as a leader and help develop higher trust on your team. He's an executive coach and business advisor, but he's also the host of the Leadership Powered by Common Sense podcast. He's been a captain in the US Army, a senior VP in the banking industry, and he has authored or co-authored five books. And his most recent one is called Trust at Work. And in this conversation with Doug, I really want to dive into what that looks like and how leaders can influence the level of trust on their team. We know that so many issues, inefficiencies, interpersonal conflict, and overall challenges in the workplace stem from a lack of trust between people. And so building trust and paying attention to the level of trust on your team is a must do and really lays the groundwork to success for you as a leader. I'm excited to bring this conversation to you. So let's dive in. Here's the question. How do you successfully transition into your first official leadership role, build the confidence and competence to lead your team successfully and establish yourself as a respected and trusted leader across the organization? That's the question and this show provides the answers. Welcome to the Manager Track Podcast. I'm your host, Ramona Shaw, and I'm on a mission to create workplaces where work is not seen as a source of stress and dread, but as a source of contribution, connection, and fulfillment. And this transition starts with developing a new generation of leaders who know how to lead so everyone wins and grows. In this show, you'll learn how to think, communicate, and act as the confident and competent leader you know you can be. Doc, welcome to the Manager Track Podcast. So glad to have you on our show. Well, thank you, Ramona. It's a pleasure to be here. So in the introduction to this episode, I already briefly introduced your, your background to the audience, but in your own words, what would you say is one of the highlights in your career that especially now today you feel like, oh, wow, I really still benefit from that experience or that lesson learned? I'd love to get a little bit of an insight into your background through that question. That's a tough one because I do feel I've been blessed with many, many, and it starts with the fact that I was introduced to the concept of having a mentor at an early, early age. And, and maybe I'll just go back to that one and, and make that the highlight. I was, uh, as many of my followers know, I was born the uh, only child of a single working mom, and she had the intelligence and foresight to surround me with mentors. I didn't have just one growing up. I always had a, a village <laughs> that became a popular phrase later, but uh, there were, there were always plenty of people I could turn to if I didn't know something or needed to learn something or just had a life question. I didn't think I could talk to my mom about. There was always somebody there that was ready and willing. And it just became a natural part of my DNA. And as I grew up and kind of started out on my own college and beyond, I continued to seek mentors. And I actually, to this day, I just turned 70 earlier this month, uh, last month, and still have three or four people that I count as my mentors. And I turn to them and we talk and share. And it's things, and as day by day goes by, things happen. And I think, oh, what would George have said? Or what would Bill have said? And you know, it guides me every day. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. And such a, such a nice skill or not even a skill, right? But an asset that you build throughout your life that can help in so many different ways or areas of, of life too. 
It really does. Different people to turn to for different topics. Right. And, <laughs> and, and one dimension of it, I'll just interject real quick. What it does, if I'm trying to shape a direction that I want to go, by having the benefit of all that input, I get to I get to weave a patchwork quilt of the solution, and it's not just my limited thinking that can guide me. I can open up the lens and 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 get all of that input and get a good balanced consideration for wherever I want to go or whatever I want to do. And that again has kind of been you know embedded in my dna and that's the way i I do my work that's the way i look at the world really Mm, beautiful well i'd like to dive a little bit into how you do your work and all that in this conversation but before we do that i want to say congratulations to your birthday so we were talking earlier about a trip that you took and i could imagine that was a birthday trip that was part of it that's right. right Very nice. Uh, so let's talk about trust and specifically trust in connection with psychological safety. Both of those are terms that people know are important as leaders to cultivate in organizations within our teams. But how do you actually see the two terms? How do you define it? And how do you identify whether or not a team has a high level or a low level of trust and psychological safety? Let me just kind of anchor that thought with a mention of a study that Google performed, and it was released in 2018. The code word for it was Project Aristotle. And you can go online, you can find the full report. They have made it public. But the fundamental question among Googleites or Googleese or whatever they call themselves was, you know, we're famous for our rigorous hiring process, so we believe and we know we've got the best of the best, yet when we bring those people in-house and we assign them to teams, not all teams work the same, and they don't produce the same level of outcome. So that was a problem for the Google executives. So they commissioned this study. They spent two years working the problem, and when they compiled everything, There were a number of factors, but the number one runaway factor was this thing called psychological safety. And it was in the report, it's described as people feeling like I can speak my mind, I can offer my idea, I'm not going to ever be belittled or people aren't going to turn it around and make me a joke behind my back. And people trust me, people, I trust them. And it's just a great safe place to do my work. So there's a natural elevation of effort and commitment when that sense of safety is there. When I read the study, I I went through all the verbiage that was there and I said, you know, the way they're describing this psychological safety is nothing more than good old fashioned trust. Mm -hmm. When we think we trust somebody, we believe they've got our back. They're never going to intentionally hurt us. They may accidentally hurt us, but it will never be intentional. And if they do hurt us or wound us, we can have a talk about it and we can fix it quickly because we have this trust. So it was it was an interesting parallel that that study came out because about that same time, a colleague of mine and I were writing a book called that we have now named trust at work let me get it in the shot here Mm -hmm. and specifically our subtitle here says tactics and tools for building high performing teams when i start talking to people about this concept of trust it's way too squishy everybody gets it they know whether or not they have it but as a leader in a business or a manager how do you build trust that's the 
prevailing question. And is there a system? Is there something intentional you can do? And in our book, my colleague and I go into what we call the team trust model. And we do talk about the methods of just exactly how to get there. Mm -hmm. So interesting how you said we are feeling comfortable saying anything without being belittled or without worrying what other people may say behind our backs. And I had a conversation in one of my groups of leaders earlier this week where someone said, we were talking actually about the topic of addressing or bringing up in a conversation in a meeting, bringing up sort of half-baked or unbaked ideas and how comfortable are we to do so? And while most people would say, you know, I want everyone else to share their half-baked or unbaked ideas, I want them to feel that this is a safe space to ask questions or to make a mistake and to come back and say, like, actually, I was wrong last week. And no one would judge them. We actually would value that in other people. But when it comes to me and me doing that, that feels really uncomfortable. And so as leaders, there's this aspect of role modeling, which makes sense sort of intellectually, but emotionally feels really uncomfortable. Yes. When you do this work with teams and leaders, what do you think is actually getting in the way of people developing this level of trust that we think is, is what we aspire to? Well, the, the basic foundation of our premise in our book on how to build trust is simply this. It's about questions. And if you think about it in a very personal way, go back to the days when you might be, or maybe some who are listening are doing this right now, they're in the market for a partner. They're dating and experiencing relationships. And when you are introduced to somebody or you meet somebody that you might have an interest in, you do what? You arrange a date, you go to dinner, go to a movie, go to a show, whatever. And while you're there, it becomes a process of dialogue and ultimately questioning. You know, what kind of food do you like? What kind of colors do you like? Cars, movies, famous people, you know, the whole gamut. And consciously or subconsciously, we're checking boxes on some kind of list somewhere that says, you know, I can relate to this person. I, I can take it to another level. And if you do take it to another level, the questions get a little deeper and a little more meaningful. And, you know, even in the case of a husband, wife, partner, life partner kind of discussion, you eventually get into religion and belief about having kids and all of them. Where do you want to live? Where do you want to work? All those bigger life questions. But you're sharing that through a process of exchange and my argument is that as leaders in the workplace, we need to model and create an environment where questions are okay. Mm -hmm. And people can feel open to have their questions answered so that they too can finish checking all the boxes that they might have about the work, the company, the boss, and build that sense of connection and comfort saying, wow, all that fear is gone. I'm ready to rock and roll and I'm ready to really commit to this work. Mm -hmm. So you're saying go deeper with your questions instead of just sort of asking high level, very tactical questions, try to get to know the other person and create that safe space where they start to feel right. open and, <clears throat> and can trust that this is a safe space for them to share more, more openly what yeah. their values are, what motivates them. 
And in the book, we go into the description of an actual diagram and a model. It's kind of a wheel, a circle that has six slices to it, six pie slices. And the teaching there is that all potential questions that ever could be asked fall into one of six categories. And as a leader, where I find my work being most beneficial, I encourage people to learn what these six categories are and the significance of each one. And then as things are swirling around them, just the day-to-day -day noise and clutter of, of running a business or having a team, as these things come at you, you can slot them into those buckets and you can start to see the connection of everything that's going on. And soon you can realize, oh, I've got one area of my business that I really need to do some work in because that's where all the questions are coming from. Mm, interesting. Could you share a little bit more about what those six high level categories are and then a situation that we can see more tactically what that might look like? What, what an example of someone identifying a gap? I can, and I can run through them real quick. They happen to be a P word alliteration. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything starts with the letter P. The very first block of questions is what we call the people questions. And it at the core of it, it's the simple fundamental question, like kind of way down on the Maslow's hierarchy of need. It says, do I even want to be here? You know, as a person, you know, looking at these other people, do I even want to be here? And you would think that when you go through the hiring and placement process and somebody reports in for work, the automatic answer is, yes, of course, I want to be here. Well, that can quickly you know, go wrong. <laughs> All the interview and the onboarding might work really nice, but when they get into the work team and they start seeing what else is really happening, you know, they may quickly say, I'm not interested in this. I don't like these people whatsoever, the behaviors, attitudes, language, whatever. And so they quickly check out at that point. Question set number two has to do with purpose. Do I even know why I'm here? Has anybody told me what we're doing, where we're going, what is the big picture, what is the vision, what is the strategy? And can I buy into that? It's almost like you, we think about it in the nonprofit world of being the cause. You know, why does this nonprofit organization exist? It's for a cause. Well, all work teams exist for a purpose. And the leader needs to be able to do a good job of explaining to the people what that purpose may be about. And kind of almost sell them on the idea of the good that can be accomplished by being there. Area number three is the plan. If I understand the purpose, now I want to see the plan. Well, how are we going to get there? What, what are the steps? What are the hurdles? What do you think the timeline is, et cetera, et cetera. I've got to buy into that. And then number four is the practice or the playbook and that's where they get exposed to the actual resources they've got to work with. You know, I love the purpose. I get the plan. Now let me see the tools I've got. You know, is it my computer system? Is it the equipment in my shop? Is it other resources around me? What is it that is going to allow me to practice my job and do my work? And are those okay? Are they worthy of supporting the plan and the purpose? Can I get through all that? 
Area number five is performance. And ultimately, one way or another, every employee, managers included, have questions in the back of their mind. If I commit all this work, how is it going to be graded? How's it going to be judged and acknowledged? And is that system for judging, scoring, and rating, is it going to be fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as soon as people do a whole lot of work and they hit their first rating cycle and they go, wait a minute, this isn't fair. This isn't right. This is not good. Well, then they start pulling back. Yeah. And then the last number six is what we call the payoff. And I'm always quick to caution everybody the payoff bucket regardless of what the name of it says, it's not just about the compensation, but it's about that sense of accomplishing the greater good. Mm-hmm. And we build a pride about who and what we are and all this hard work we did. And can I stay and and increase my excitement about what we're doing here? And on that point, I'll give a quick example. In my early career, I was a banker and I worked for a regional bank that turned out to be very successful. And I just sort of somewhat fell into it. I didn't even know what I was shopping for when I landed the job there. But we ran off 64 consecutive quarters of earnings growth. That's, you know, 16 years of success as an organization. And we went through economic ups and downs. You know, we had hard times. We had good times. But when we hit like right about quarter number seven and this string was starting to build, we, that kind of became its own energy. That was the payoff section for us. Mm-hmm. It was like no other bank around us is doing this. This is special. We need to keep this going. We need to do everything we've got to do to keep this thing going. Wow. What an example. When you talked about the six pillars or the six slices there on that circle, I thought about all the different examples where sometimes somewhat intentionally, but most often I'd say unintentionally, leaders or organizations create a conflict of interest. They're trying to support one thing, but inadvertently they're creating a disadvantage on one of the other remaining five pillars, which then reduces the level of trust and creates a separation between employees and leadership that breaks trust between the two. Totally. And I, I agree with you 100%. And, and generally where that first breakdown begins to happen is if, if the organization is big enough, there is going to be some team somewhere that is setting policy and procedure. Mm-hmm. And, and they're saying maybe it's because of a, a regulatory requirement, maybe it's because of some other kind of governance issues or market restriction or forecast. And they're kind of setting policies that say, you can't do that kind of transaction. You can't sell that kind of deal. Mm -hmm. You can't accept that piece of business. And yet, when you boil it down and and you're looking at your work team and you're saying, yeah, but we said our purpose is to go conquer this part of the world. And now you're telling me the policy is, no, you don't do that. Well, major disconnect right there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. As a caring and driven manager, I know you want to strengthen your leadership skills, advance your career, and lead a high-performing, engaged team. And in order to do that, as a leader, you need to lead with a system. 
not by shooting from your hips or reacting to everyone else around you. To do so, you need to first learn what should go into a leadership system and second, develop your own. Now, the good news is that I teach you one must-have part in your leadership system in a concise, actionable, and yet comprehensive course focused on running successful one-on-one meetings with your direct reports. It includes over 67 minutes of tactical leadership training, plus a set of resources to make this as easy and immediately applicable for you as possible. You can either watch the video lessons or listen to it through a private podcast feed on your phone. You can get your hands on this course, which I want every single manager to have, for a nominal $19 at ramonashaw.com slash one one. That's two times the number one. You can check the show notes for the details or head on over to ramonashaw.com slash one one to get started right now. So from a leader's perspective, what are the biggest levers that a leader has in order to create trust even within their small units? If they can't control the whole organization or all of these pillars, but what can they do this next week or so to establish a stronger sense of trust? Well, I would suggest that they they start with realizing the continuity of the nature of the questions that their employees are going to have. And it's not always a literal spoken statement that there's a question, but you'll see it in work that's not hitting deadlines, work that's not quite being completed into a standard that you really want. So you need to be able to have your one-on-ones and your small team meetings with a spirit of somebody must have a question about this, you know, that and what are the questions we haven't asked yet? Mm-hmm. Or, or what are you thinking that I haven't covered for you yet? Mm-hmm. And do everything you can as a leader to open that door. And I think of the classic, you know, way back in the day, somebody coined the phrase as a manager, let's have an open door policy. Well, are you really, you know, are you really doing that? Are you really taking full advantage of what that should mean? And that's really the first step is to think about the way you interact with your people and see if there's in fact a tendency to shoot people down. You know, it's kind of like, I can't do that right now. Go away, go away, you know, leave me alone, go away. Mm -hmm. And um, that in and of itself you know, can can really turn a lot of people off if it happens too frequently. So what would you suggest instead? I guess there's a fine line between having this open door policy in the sense of welcoming and providing the presence while also making sure that you're not becoming too dependent or that employees don't become too dependent on your availability so that you are always their go-to person and they're not being resourceful to the degree that they could be on their own. So what is the practice that you recommend when you work with leaders directly? Well, you're, you're right. And, and that's a fair, very fair question. And, and leaders do have to manage their own time. So they, they've got to set up some kind of parameter for things that can work. I'll use one extreme example I talk about frequently. I knew a bank executive that I worked with a number of years ago. She had a very large group, I think five or 600 employees of this bank reported to her and it was a high volume, high pressure situation. 
she made a policy. She said, if you need to send me something in an email and it's urgent and you need an answer, put the word urgent in the subject line. Mm -hmm. And I promise you, I will get to you within the day, you know. And she said, everything else is going to have to wait its turn in my queue. I have a process for triaging this stuff. I'll get to you when I can. You just need to know that. And of course, there was a caveat. You better not abuse this privilege. <laughs> but nonetheless, it was a system she had. And everybody that I talked to in that department said it worked. Yeah. She was true to her word. And if, if you had something that was really melting down, you could put urgent in the email and she would be back. And people even said it was obvious, even moving between her meetings, she would check that and give you a response yeah. before she went into the next meeting. Yeah. So I want to highlight two things from that example. And, and um, for people who listen to this podcast on a regular basis, they probably identify this too. One is this leader has a system. And I talk about developing your own system all the time because it creates efficiency in the first place, but it also makes other people feel more consistent. They can rely on you in a stronger way because they know that this is your system and this is how you operate. So defining what is your system, owning it, and with owning it, I mean, feel free to tell people or stand up and tell people, this is how I operate. This is how I know I can be of most value and the most productive or the most effective in my role. So this is how I operate. And I have a system and I communicate it. I'm being very explicit of what I need and how it will work. And then telling people, if you put urgent there, I will check it. I will check between meetings. I will check during the lunch break or whatever that may be so that, but don't abuse it. Right. So those are all the terms of explicit communication that make <clears throat> it run so much smoother. Right. No, I agree with you. And, and the whole system idea is, is spot on. I have worked with people who frequently approach me. They say, well, one of my challenges is I want to learn how to manage up the organization. Mm -hmm. And anytime a client asks me that, I say, well, let's take a pause a minute and allow me on my soapbox. There is no such thing as managing up. You're, you're speaking those words, I think, set you up for false expectation. Mm, now, okay. tell us more. Now, can you influence what's going on above you? The answer is absolutely yes. Yep. But are you really going to manage it and dictate a change up the hill? I disagree. I don't think you ever will. Mm -hmm. But part of that system and what I've told people that are trying to manage up, I'll say, well, start with being sure you are crystal clear, this boss you have or the stakeholder you have, do you know how they communicate? Are you clear on how they communicate? Do they want a phone call? Do they want a text? Do they want an email? Do they want a report? Mm -hmm. All of those things. And they tend to vary by executive. Mm -hmm. And some really old school guys say, don't load up my inbox, call me. Yeah. Make the phone call. If you have to leave me a voicemail, but make the phone call. I, I'm not gonna chase emails. I'm not gonna do texts, you know, get on the phone. So that's one. And I think it goes to your point when that leader has made it clear in their system for how they want to receive information and process data, you got to be able to provide it that way. You can't kick and fight against that mm -hmm. and say, yeah, but you got to see this report. If the boss is telling you, no, I don't, I need the bottom line. 
Yeah. And that brings us back to questions, right? Right. <laughs> Asking those questions, getting and understanding what they need and what they want and what works for them. It goes the same way for the employees that you manage, that they know how to best interact with you. And when we're aware of this, we can take ownership of that and communicate it directly without waiting for them to, to ask the questions. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Based on this conversation around trust and psychological safety, is there another question I should have asked that we didn't that we didn't address yet? Well, I'll I'll interject this. When I deal with leaders and we get into this realm and I give them my presentation about the team trust model, inevitably they'll ask me, should I be sharing this with my team? And I'll say, absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and when companies have done that, I've actually gone back in, you know, later dates and, in you know, invited to sit in on a team meeting. And what I found, people actually picked this up as a vocabulary. Nice. And the first time I, I really experienced that, we had just released the book. I had been teaching it for a long time. This system that I talk about, uh, the the whole circle wheel thing, has actually been around for about 30 years, believe it or not. And it's just uh, books never really been written about it. And my partner and I did that. And um, anyway, I taught this to a group. It was a pretty senior team at one of the major oil companies. And I went back about three months later and I was invited to sit in on their team meeting just for no particular purpose, just to observe. And as soon as they opened the meeting, start going around the room, the classic, you know, we'll go around the table with input and updates and such. Uh, somebody said, I've discovered a problem in number three. We have a flaw in our plan. And I went, wow. <laughs> the team was communicating about identifying the slice of this a wheel that they were in and, and where they were stuck. And everybody immediately went, okay, yeah, plan, what part of the plan? Front, back, in, middle, where, what part? And it just, the momentum of the effort to solve the problem was just lightning fast. Oh, so good. So I also take that as an invitation. On one hand, we'll link to the book in the show notes for people who want to dive into it, but also that when teams and leaders introduce some kind of framework and how they want to operate or how they want to think about problems, even I often talk about decision-making processes, right? So that's another one where as a leader, you would define the framework for how do we make decisions. You introduce some kind of vocabulary, again, falls into your system and how you operate or manage a team. And then by communicating this, the team will start to leverage that language and it becomes that shared common language which in itself, just by doing that, establishes a sense of trust and a bond, right? Right. That's right. That's right. And then on top of that, you build on it by encouraging people to address the different items. And I think the real bottom line I want to stress is that there isn't a need to have a much wider view and open lens about having your discussions where these questions can be brought up and resolved. And even if you're a leader and you've got an employee that's kind of quiet, really introverted and all that, you know, they've got questions. You just need to know that if people listening today don't hear anything from me, just know that your people have questions. They can't help but have questions. And the more you can do to open the door and pursue 
the open and willing dialogue. Now, obviously, if it's your management style to be a little hard around the edges, you got to be careful how you answer them. Mm-hmm. You know, if you say you're going to open the door, but then you immediately go, no, that's, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. You know, yeah. really, really gruff. You're going to kill it on the spot. Yeah. That'll be very short, short-sighted effort. Another idea might be to child to, and I'm curious if you have experience with this before we wrap, but the, the idea of assigning a challenger and have someone, or even just as a team say, let's challenge this plan. Let's challenge the idea. Let's assume everything went wrong. What happened, right? So ahead of time thinking, what could we be overlooking here mm-hmm. or what's missing? I like that. Yeah, that would be a, a good method to be sure the floor is open for questions. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think like we said in the beginning, you said, what was the word that you used to describe trust? Squishy? <laughs> what you say? <laughs> It's hard to put a finger on it and to figure out like how, what is trust really? And how do I build it? I know it comes from relationships, but maybe I don't want to be the best friend of all my people on the team, nor do I think I should. So how do I build trust in that employee manager relationship that for many people is an open question. And I think the framework that you introduced here, and that will also link to in the show notes can be a helpful way to get started. And like you said, really the bottom line, start prompting these questions to make sure that you're opening the door and you're pulling those out as the dialogue uh, and answering those will support the trust building process. Yep. That's it. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being part of the Manager Track podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation and your wisdom from decades of work in different institutions and fields. And now you're working with a lot of teams and organizations on specifically this topic. Thank you for being on, Doug. Well, you're very welcome, Ramona. Happy to be here. If you enjoyed this episode, then check out two other awesome resources to help you become a leader people love to work with. This includes my best-selling book, The Confident Incompetent New Manager, which you can find on Amazon or at RamonaShaw.com book and a free training on how to successfully lead as a new manager. You can check it out at RamonaShaw.com masterclass. These resources and a couple more you'll find in the show notes down below.